Wow, it's great to see you here. I can't think of a place that I would rather be on Christmas morning than gathered with God's people to hear, to, to sing, to, to um, revel in the glory of the most amazing of stories that God gave his son to be the savior of the world. And we are here, beloved, because of that, to celebrate that, to be reminded of that, the glory in that, a revel in that amazing truth. Well, we have for you this morning part three of a story. If you are with us for the first time uh, this morning, you haven't been able to be here the prior two weeks, then you're coming in on something, but I will do my best to catch you up so that you can make and get the most of it as well. But we have, in preparation for this day, we have been telling a story. And it has gone on for the last two weeks, and we finish it here this morning. And this is not one of those once-upon-a-time stories. This is a true story. This is a fact story. This is a recounting of what happened in space and time two millennia ago. God tore open the veil of glory, as it were, and his own son descended to earth in the most amazing of fashions, to be born of a woman, to be born under the Jewish law, to live perfectly under that law, and then to offer himself willingly as a substitutionary sacrifice that we so desperately need. That is the glory of Christmas. And that is the story that I have been endeavoring to relay to you over the past couple of weeks. This story, as I've been telling it to you, has eight chapters and an epilogue. And we have covered the first seven chapters in the prior two weeks. And so this morning, as we come here to the finale, and you know any good story, it it has its finale there at the end, right? And so chapter eight and then the epilogue is the great finale of this amazing Christmas story. Just to remind you of the story, we said chapter 1 was entitled, A Kingdom Lost. A Kingdom Lost. And, and there we, we took a look at the fall of Adam and how his sin plunged mankind and all of creation into ruin. Chapter 2, help is on the way. There, quickly, God intervenes and promises a deliverer, the seed of a woman, who will come and who will rescue God's creation from Adam's sin. Chapter 3, Father Abraham. There we were introduced to that great Old Testament figure who still speaks today through the Word of God, Father Abraham, and the promise to him, the most amazing promise, a promise of prosperity, personal prosperity, a, a promise of a homeland, and a promise to be a universal blessing to all of mankind. That great Abrahamic promise is the foundational promise that flows through the rest of the Word of God and finds its final fruition here in the epilogue that we'll look at a little bit later. Chapter 4 was entitled, The Kingdom of Priests, where God called out through the children of this father Abraham, a, a nation unto himself, the sons of Jacob, known as Israel, and they were to be God's special envoys to the world. A kingdom of priests. Chapter 5 is entitled, Title to the Land. Title to the Land. And, and there we saw God's most amazing promise of a permanent homeland for his ancient people, Israel. Chapter 6, God chooses a king. And there we saw God's choice of the shepherd boy, David. And how he elevated him to the throne of Israel. And there made the most amazing promise to David. That he would have an enduring throne. An enduring house. And an enduring kingdom. And we noted that the greater son of David, Jesus the Christ. Is the place where the final fulfillment comes of that great Davidic promise. And finally, last week, chapter 7. Emmanuel. God with us in the most amazing reality that God became a man and dwelt among us. 
Well, we pick up the story here in chapter 8 this morning. Chapter 8. Chapter 8 is entitled, The Spirit Within. The Spirit Within. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, there in the second giving of the law, the people say to Moses in verse 27 of Deuteronomy chapter 5, they say, go near and hear all that the Lord our God says, and, and then speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you, and we will hear and do it. And then in verse 29, God laments. He says, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Oh, their intention was good, to obey and do all that the Lord God had said, but God knew they lacked the power to do so. Their heart just didn't have what it took to fulfill the law as it had been given to them. So God gave a new covenant, and it's It's spoken of here in Jeremiah chapter 31, and and so I invite you to turn there as we begin in Jeremiah 31 and verse 31, to address this great deficiency of a heart that lacks the ability to do all that God has said. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31, spoken through the uh, the prophet Jeremiah to the nation of Israel, following their long periods of disobedience to the Mosaic law. He says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus Says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. God makes this great promise to the nation Israel. There is a new covenant coming. And this new covenant is as as certain as the fixed order of the celestial bodies, day in and day day out. Well, in chapter 7, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus came into the, into the, earth, into the world, right, as a, as a man. And he, and he lived and walked among the people. And he presented himself before them with many convincing signs and miracles. And he spoke the word of God to them and he invited them to, to come to him and to be saved and to, and to learn to live in harmony with God, to trust Him as God's great Messiah. But as this King came into the world, beloved, few people noticed. Few people noticed. In fact, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, and in verse 32, where the angel speaks to Mary and says, He will be great, this child you have, and and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And yet, chapter 2, verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in claws and laid him in a manger, literally a feed trough, because there was no room for them in the end. The God of glory stepped into space and time, and nobody noticed. And nobody noticed. 
He came to his own, John says in John chapter 1 and verse 11, and his own did not receive him. He came to the nation of Israel. He offered himself to them in fulfillment of all of their long prophecies. And they had no time to hear him. They had no interest in him. In fact, they turned on him and eventually called for a common criminal in his place and said, crucify him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. And Jesus spoke to that desperately wicked nation and said, as recorded in Matthew chapter 23 and verses 37 and following, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. His people rejected their king, and his king rejected them for a season. In the great providential sovereign plan of God, of course, none of this catches him by surprise. It is all part of his secret plan. And as it is revealed, we find as well that when Israel rejected her king, her king turned to the Gentiles, to us, and offered himself to us. In fact, Matthew records in his gospel in Matthew 16 and verse 18 where Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my church. And so Jesus was crucified. He was rejected by his people. And as he left, beloved, as he, as he died, as he was buried, as he rose again, he brought with him the initiation of the new covenant long promised through the prophets Jeremiah. This new covenant is the age of the Spirit. It is the age of the Spirit. It is, it is the reality that now what once dwelled externally on tablets of stone now dwells within the human heart by the Spirit of the living God. This new covenant was inaugurated by Jesus himself in his death and his resurrection. As the Apostle Paul records in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 25. Where Paul writes, in the same way, he that is Jesus took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus said to his disciples in, that night in the upper room in John 16, that I go to the Father, and if I go, I will send the Spirit. I will send the Spirit. And so Jesus initiated this new covenant long foretold, the, the, the covenant in whom the Spirit is the one who indwells God's people. This indwelling of the Spirit brings about many new realities, new spiritual realities that, that you and I partake of and perhaps do not give sufficient thought to. For example... In John's Gospel, where Jesus has the encounter with Nicodemus, the, the teacher among the Jewish people at the time, he says to Nicodemus, in John chapter 3 and verse 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Referring back to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36, where they're speaking about this coming new covenant, this age of the Spirit. The prophet Ezekiel says, I will take you, verse 24, from the nations and gather you from all the lands and, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. This new covenant, beloved 
initiates with the giving of the Spirit who brings about life. The new birth. Regeneration is the theological term. It is by the Spirit's power that people are brought to life from the dead. It is the, this new covenant in which the Holy Spirit now dwells within us. Within us. And in fact, in John chapter 7 and verse 39, there Jesus is speaking uh, to the people, says the most amazing thing. Actually, it's John who, uh, Jesus says that out of, your, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John says editorially in verse 39 of John 7, but this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. It is the coming of the Spirit and his indwelling that brings about this most amazing change. The law no longer on tablets of stone, now written indelibly and permanently on the human heart. It is the indwelling of the Spirit under the terms of the new covenant that brings about a full and complete forgiveness of sin. Hebrews chapter 10, speaking of the same reality, says in verse 16, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. Then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. It is by the work of the indwelling Spirit of God that is the reality of the new covenant in which sin no longer uh, sits upon us and requires uh, some sort of weekly, daily, monthly, yearly sacrifice again and again and again. We came through these doors this morning and not one of you had a sheep across his shoulder. Because we no longer offer the blood of animals to atone for the sin of our soul. Because that one, that, that perfect Lamb of God has been slain on our behalf. He has died once and for all. That in His sacrifice, all sin, all guilt is forever removed. And here, in the New Covenant, we know full and complete forgiveness of sin. And of course, as I read to you in, in Ezekiel 30, or excuse me, in Jeremiah 31, that Israel herself has a permanent promise of her land. That which had previously been promised to her in the Palestinian covenant is reaffirmed in the new covenant. Beloved, I told you two weeks ago that when God made that covenant with Moses, what we know as the old covenant, that it was under the terms of obedience of that old covenant by which the great promises to Abraham were administered and mediated to his people. The Mosaic Covenant has been replaced. It has been superseded by the New Covenant, that which is now eternal and permanent through the indwelling Spirit. And it is through the New Covenant that the great promises to Abraham are now administered again to God's people. But that raises the most vexing question to the thoughtful. And the question is this. These passages we've read here on the, old, on the new covenant are written to the nation of Israel. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob, right? Not like the covenant I made with their fathers. So if the new covenant is with Israel, and it is inaugurated by the death of Christ, whom Israel disregarded and had no interest in, then how is it? And to what extent do you and I, who are not Jewish, participate and benefit by the coming of this new covenant? In other words, how do you and I, Gentiles, manage to get in on this incredible promise that God made to his ancient people, Israel? How do we? This is a most difficult question to be sure. But let me offer you some thoughts along this line as you ponder the 
amazing reality of Christmas. Jesus Christ, a Jewish man, fully identified with his ancient people, Israel. He lived their life of obedience that they should have lived. He walked in the Spirit. He lived the life of the indwelling Spirit. And in that sense, he entered into this new covenant himself. And then he shares with us, Gentiles, that if we will commit to him by faith, he then shares with us the blessings of that new covenant via our spiritual union with him. In other words, Jesus will share with you, he will share with me, by faith, in union with him, that which is his. Again, the Apostle Paul, speaking of these deep and difficult topics, but he says in Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 12, writing to a Gentile audience there, he says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Beloved, I'm Scottish by descent. And the fact that I'm Scottish by descent means that my ancestors were pagans. My ancestors worshipped nature gods lived under the fear of all kinds of demonic spirits. My ancient ancestors were entirely and totally and completely separated from the God of the universe, lost in darkness. And if you're a Gentile this morning, so were yours. So were yours. The great promises that were given were not given to your ancestors, nor were they given to mine. But they were given to the people of Israel. God's special people, His chosen people. And yet, in the work of Christ, something most amazing happens. Look again at verse 13 where Paul says, in verse, the end of verse 12, having no hope without God in the world, but now... But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It is by the the blood of Christ, it is by Jesus sharing with us the blessings of that new covenant when we join to Him in faith and and we become what is known as in Christ. That is, we are united with Christ that we then share in all the blessings that Jesus earned for His ancient people, Israel. You and I live in an interesting time in history. We live between the ages. We are part of, this morning, what is known as the mystery church. Something not foreseen by the ancient prophets. You you scour the Old Testament in vain, and you cannot find the reality of what we see here this morning. And that is Jew and Gentile together in Christ in their, and united to God on a level playing field. Unknown in prior generations. Verse 4, chapter 3 of Ephesians where Paul addresses such things. He says, was given to me by a revelation that was made known to me, the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Lord. That is, no one knew this. No one could see this. To be specific, Paul says, this is the mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is, that in Christ Jesus, united to Christ Jesus this morning, you and I, Jew and Gentile, together have access to the glorious promises of the new covenant. They are ours. Maybe I can illustrate this for you. My parents have a will. And that will entitles me as their son to a certain benefit. And that benefit is my inheritance. 
It is my inheritance. My wife, Carol, has no such claim on my parents. No claim at all. But, there it is, but via her union with me in marriage, she is made beneficiary of the benefits of that will. That my inheritance is now shared with her because she is in union with me through marriage. Now, that union of our marriage doesn't minimize my inheritance. It doesn't abrogate my inheritance in any way, shape, or form or my legal claim to it. It's still my inheritance. But it is shared with her via our union in marriage. In the same way, the Jewish people continue to have a legal claim to the new covenant. It is their covenant. It was promised to them. And it is you and I who via our union with Christ, and if you like, our marriage to Christ, we share in the benefits of their inheritance. We become partakers of the new covenant. This is the glory of the Spirit within. Epilogue. Epilogue. The return of the king. The return of the king. When you look around this Christmas morning, you can't help but notice that this world is not right. Famine, disease, war, Inhumanity, cruelty, these things characterize our world. On a beautiful Christmas morning, you open the newspaper and the headlines are dominated by the reality of we live in a very bent and broken world. Beloved, rather than live by the golden rule, Our world instead is red in tooth and claw. And these things should never be. These things should not be. This is not how God created it to be. And yet here we find ourselves. And it will never change. Unless God changes it. It will never change. Unless God changes it. And so we must have a king. Not a human king. Not a world leader. Not someone that we will elect in any kind of political process. Local, national, or international. Not some ruling council. Not some, some group of nations who would put together their best and their brightest. For We have tried all these things. And yet the bloodshed continues. And the horrors intensify. We must have, indeed, we are desperate for a righteous king. When Jesus' disciples wanted him to teach them how to pray, he said to them the following. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That was 2,000 years ago. And we can offer that same prayer even this morning, can we not? Oh God, may your kingdom come. Oh God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are desperate for a king.
2,600 years ago, there was a king. He was the king of the most powerful nation of his day. His empire stretched further, was more wealthy than any that had preceded him. Whatever he put his hand to do, he did. Nothing could restrain or resist him. He was a powerful king. And he had a dream. He had a dream. That king by the name was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. You can find his dream in Daniel chapter 2. I invite you to turn there. Daniel chapter 2. Verse 1. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. The second year, this is 603 B.C. He had these dreams, and they tormented him. So he called for the wise men of his day, and he, and he wanted them to explain this dream to him. And so, verse 4, they came to him and they said to him, O king, live forever. Tell us the dream to your servants and we will declare its interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar was a wise king and he didn't trust them. So what he said to them, he replied to them, verse 5, The commandment for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But... If you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. I love that. This is a man of power who knows that when you're a powerful person, all kinds of people suck up to you and tell you what they think you want to hear. And so he said to them, yes, tell me what my dream means, but tell me what the dream is. First, if you can tell me what it is, then I'll believe that you can tell me what it means. And of course, none of them can do so. But one, there's a, there's a Jewish prisoner of war who has by this time become elevated within the kingdom whose name is Daniel. And God reveals to Daniel both the dream and its interpretation. Saving time, I'll take you over to verse 36. This was the dream, O king. Now we will tell us interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. His dream was of a statue who had a head of gold and and had a a trunk, as it were, of silver, and then it had an abdomen of bronze, and then it had legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. You are the golden head of that statue, O king. Verse 39, And after you will arise another kingdom inferior to you, and then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so that like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and the toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. 
And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. Verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. And it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future so that the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. God gave in a dream to that ancient Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar a plan for the history of the world. And he laid it out in those kingdoms, those four kingdoms. And each kingdom, beloved, and and the world history confirms the reality of it all is that each kingdom fell in succession to the other one. Babylon fell to Medo-Persia, Medo-Persia fell to Greece, and Greece fell to the Iron Kingdom, Rome. Each one gobbled up its predecessor. But the final kingdom, that terrifying kingdom of iron and clay, that revived Roman kingdom, for the Roman Empire was never conquered from without. It collapsed from within. And it will be revived again someday. And when that happens, then God will draw to an end human history Then God's kingdom will come to earth as Jesus taught us to pray. Then all of those predecessor kingdoms that have been in in defiance of God since the beginning of time will be crushed. And Messiah's kingdom will fill the earth. How can I speak with such confidence? Because Daniel had a dream 50 years later. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. You've heard me say this before, the book of Daniel, I I love this great book of prophecies, for in it is revealed the history of the world, both at the time it was all forward, but for us, most of it in the rearview mirror, but there is still the final fulfillment to come. And it is all about these world empires. But in Daniel chapter 7, verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream. And visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. The first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, was the year 553 B.C. This is 50 years following Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Half a lifetime later, Daniel receives his own dream and vision. And go over to verse 13 of chapter 7 where we find the the heart and core of Daniel's vision. Where Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel has a vision of this great coming kingdom, the the kingdom that will smash and crush Nebuchadnezzar's statue. It is entrusted into the hands of one like the Son of Man. What was Jesus' most used self-reference? How did Jesus most often refer to himself in the Gospels? The Son of Man. He called himself the Son of Man, for indeed, that's who he is. As we contemplate this kingdom that is yet to come, certain questions come to mind. What will this future kingdom be like? This coming kingdom, what will it be like? Well, we're indebted again to the prophets because we're told in Isaiah chapter 9. 
Another great Christmas text, right? You find it on your Christmas cards. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. What will this future kingdom be like? The government will rest upon the shoulders of this future king. In other words, there will be universal rule. Universal righteous rule entrusted to one man. The coming king. Turn over a couple more pages to chapter 11. What will this future kingdom be like? It will be a kingdom of peace and prosperity. Chapter 11 and beginning in verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see. Nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor. And decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den." They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The United Nations has a piece of this prophecy inscribed above the doors to enter their building, and yet they are unable to bring it about. But the coming king will bring a time of peace and prosperity spoken of here symbolically by the, by the prophet when he talks about those natural enemies within the, within the animal realm who live at peace with one another. What will this kingdom be like? Isaiah chapter 35. The desert will bloom. That's good news for Southern California, by the way. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 and 2. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. And and it will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shouts of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon, and they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. The the deserts of Israel will blossom and sprout. Verses 5 and 6. Disease will cease. For then then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Jesus went about in his public ministry, did he not? Healing the lame, opening the eyes of the blind, granting hearing to the deaf. And he did so to verify the reality that he is the one long foretold. Finally, the redeemed of the Lord will rejoice, verse 10. Then the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy on their heads. And they will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Beloved, oh, I long for those days. I long for those days. This Christmas morning, I long for peace on earth. Hmm? But it will never come until the King of Peace himself returns. Question, what is Jesus doing now? What is he doing now? When he ascended to the right hand of his Father, he ascended there to wait for his coming kingdom and to intercede on behalf of you and I, his children. Romans chapter 8 and verse 34, Jesus Christ, or excuse me, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. 
Psalm 110 and verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is waiting until the time is right to return and take his kingdom. When will that come? When will this kingdom come? Only God knows. Only God knows. In fact, even the king himself, when he walked this earth, according to Matthew 24 and verse 36, was unaware. He says there, but, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. If anyone sets a date, anyone says he's coming today, he's coming tomorrow, you can know for sure that they don't know. <laughs> and they're not telling you the truth. When will the kingdom come? Beloved, it will come following the great tribulation. When God accomplishes those things that remain according to his eternal plan and timetable. It will come when he has crushed the kingdoms of this world as foreseen 2,600 years ago by the ancient king Nebuchadnezzar. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15 says, And the seventh angel sounded. And there arose loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The king will return after he has humbled his ancient people Israel, when they are ready to receive him. For Jesus said to them, You will not see me again until you are willing to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The prophet Zechariah writes in, in prophecy, looking forward to those days in Zechariah 12 and verse 10, that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And what will be, the, what will be that mourning? What will be the, the, the words they will express that mourning? We can look to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. This will be what they will vocalize. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Looking forward to that great day, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11, verse 25 and the first part of 26, he says, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved. Beloved, we live between the ages. We live in this amazing time, never foreseen by the ancient prophets, when God sent His Son into the world, He sent Him to His chosen people, and His people rejected Him. They crucified Him. He was buried and rose again on the third day because death could not hold Him. Because the cords and bonds of death are sin, and Jesus was sinless. And as He rose from the dead, He, he has within Him a life of the age to come, and He shares it with all who will come to Him by faith. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. With the reality that the life of the age to come, the, the, the citizenship in that coming kingdom, that which Jesus said to, to Nicodemus, you cannot even see it, let alone enter it, unless one is born from above. Unless the Spirit regenerates one, gives them new life. You must be born again. That is not a commandment to obey. That is a statement of ontological reality. Unless you are born of the Spirit, unless the Spirit of God has done in you His work of regeneration and has brought you in new life, you will never see this coming kingdom. And what that means, beloved, is that when you look around this world, this is the best it's going to get for you. This is the best it will get. 
And what it also means is if you have come to embrace that Messiah by faith, believing that His death, burial, and resurrection was for you, then this is the worst it gets. This is the worst it gets. And you can look forward to that coming King who will right the wrongs, who will overturn the curse, and will rule and reign over a kingdom of redeemed people forever and ever and ever. And in Him, all the ancient prophecies are fulfilled. In Him, all the longings of the hearts of the people of God from the beginning of time will be fulfilled. He will rid this world of its curse and bring about His everlasting kingdom of righteousness where righteousness will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, the prophet says. How we long for that coming king. This Christmas morning, don't think about a baby in a, in a feed trough. Think about a coming king. A coming king who will make all things right. Let me pray, and we will sing what is my most favorite Christmas carol. That great work by Isaac Watts, Joy to the World. Father, we're just stunned when we take the time to think about all that you have done in Christ. So even in these last three weeks, as we have, we have traced the promise from the garden to the throne room. Our hearts are inflamed with love. And our hope is lifted high. Our eyes are off the horizontal. We are not, we are not drugged down by the circumstances of this life, either personal or societal. But instead, we, with eyes of faith, we look up for our redemption draws near. Oh, send your Son, that great King. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen.